You know, it's so exciting to read about biblical history. The stories of God working in the lives of people, people that God has called out of the world. We see God intervening in the scriptures in ordinary people, people just like you and I, that he might make a name for himself. We see the history of God's people recounted in sermon after sermon in God's word, often in, well, I guess always in overview form. That's exactly what we see in the Levite sermon that we began a couple of weeks ago in Nehemiah chapter 9. But in other places in Scripture, another example is Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. We see portions of the history of Israel in the book of Hebrews and different sections there. And actually, we see portions of this history referred to throughout the New Testament. We see it in Old Testament sermons, but also in New Testament sermons. And the Word of God, actually, it's not just sermons per se. It's the Word of God continually referring back to that true history of how God worked in the life of these people that he called out for his namesake. So why does God's Word and God's preachers recount the history of Israel? What does it mean to us today? And is it possible that God wants you and I, in a sense, to be a part of that history? To be those who are called out to make a, so that God, we could say, might make a name for himself. Two weeks ago, we saw the children of Judah on the 24th day of Tishrei. So about the month October, how they, after the Feast of Tabernacles ending a couple days before, they repented in sackcloth. They threw dust on their heads. The outward expression of repentance. They set themselves apart from foreigners. They read the book of the law on this Monday, would be Monday on our calendar, for a quarter of the day. Then, as a result or responding to the word of God, they confess their sins and worship the Lord for the second quarter of the day. Then the Levites stood up and recounted the history of Israel. And as we saw two, two weeks ago, they began by bless, blessing the Lord, saying, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. So they began with worship. They worshiped the God of Israel, the God that had spoken, the God that had worked in their history. And then we saw in verse 6 that the Levites proclaim, You alone are the Lord. That's Yahweh or Yahweh, the eternal self-existing one. You alone are the Lord. No one else is the eternal God. No one else has no competitors. No one else is completely independent on no one or no thing. No one else had no beginning and will have no end. No one else is absolutely God. No one else is Yahweh. So the Levites proclaim Yahweh as their creator, the creator of the heavens and all their hosts. 
the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. He is the creator of life and the sustainer of life. We exist because he exists. Everything exists as he holds it together. Even the heavenly host worships him. Everything in heaven and in earth and under the earth was created to praise his name and worship him. We were created. You and I were created to be worshipers of God. In verse 7, again, you alone are Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, who chose Abram out of Ur and gave him a new name. Changed his name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. Promising to make, in Genesis 12, to make him a great nation. And we know the story of how God worked. How God gave him a son in his old age. When it was humanly impossible for a wife that had been barren at that age to bear a child. But by God, by his power, it was possible. Because God is sovereign. God was calling out a people for his name. This was the miraculous power of God. A people to worship him. It was the descendants of Abraham that are the elect of God. But not all the descendants of Abraham are the elect. It was the descendants of Jacob that are the elect of God. Did I say that right? Of Isaac that are the elect of God. But not all the descendants of Isaac are the elect. Not Esau. Just as the Ishmaelites. The son Ishmael of Abraham was not the elect. But it was the sons, excuse me, the descendants of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, that are the elect of God. But not even all the descendants of Israel are the elect of God. It's not necessarily the physical descendants of Abraham that were chosen, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. It's not good enough to be a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You must be born again. You must have God's righteousness imputed or reckoned to your account. The chosen are those who have faith like Abraham had, whether Jew or Gentile. Very clear. Notice verse 8. God also promised to give Abraham the land of Canaan. And he also promised, or excuse me, I should say God kept his promise because God is righteous. His faithfulness is based upon his righteousness. The Levites continue in verse 9. God saw the affliction of Israel in Egypt. Now they're in Egypt. 400 years in Egypt, from the time of Joseph, 
and we remember the story of how God worked, sovereignly worked through Joseph and what happened to Joseph to save the nation of Israel from famine. But they ended up staying in Egypt for 400 years. And what started out very well did not continue to be so. They, for many years, were under the affliction of the Egyptians, the Egyptian leaders. Understand being chosen of God does not mean a bed of roses. Sometimes it means a life of difficulties, just as Israel experienced. Often it means a life of difficulties. Take a look at God's people throughout biblical history. Whether we look at them as a nation or as individuals, their history is that of affliction. And the word affliction here is the Hebrew word for poverty or misery. can be used of poverty. But here in this context, it's the idea of misery, of difficulties. So trusting in Christ, obeying God can lead to difficulties. Persecution, affliction, misery. Abraham left the comforts of home to live in tents, looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Many Old Testament believers lived as strangers and exiles on this earth looking for a homeland, but did not obtain it. God asked Abraham to offer up his promised son, Isaac, As a sacrifice, Abraham believing the promise. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting fleeting pleasures. He considered the reproach greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Rahab endangered her life to protect God's spies. See, we're talking about the history of Israel, but specifically, we're talking about the struggles, the afflictions that they went through. Hebrews tells us some Old Testament saints were tortured, not accepting their release. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. By the way, this is your best life now. See what the word of God teaches We don't come to Christ because he's going to make us healthy and wealthy. We are looking for a homeland. We're trusting the one that created us and has redeemed us out of this world. Regardless of the consequences in this life, it's not always easy. It's so easy for us here in America that enjoy all these pleasures and benefits of this culture, of this society, To think that's the way it's supposed to be for believers. But that's not what we see in the word of God. And by the way, difficulties in this life is not necessarily an indication of the judgment of God. Believers are promised chastening. 
that we might be holy. We need chastening that we might be holy. Even the Apostle Paul suffered difficulties that came about due to faithful service. Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five different times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Again, folks. This is your best life now. We come to Christ not looking for a bed of roses, but we trust him regardless of the circumstances. Simply put, walking with the Lord often includes all kinds of afflictions, even persecutions. Paul wrote to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In Nehemiah 9, the Levites are proclaiming the history of Israel. More specifically, they're proclaiming God's greatness and his goodness. Yet God allowed the Israelites to spend 400 years in Egypt. With many years being with great misery. Be very easy for them during those years. We know over a hundred years to think God's abandoned me. But God had not abandoned his people. And when we go through difficulties in this life, God has not abandoned us either. He is there. God is faithful because he's righteous. As we've already seen. The Levites are proclaiming the history of Israel. They're proclaiming God's greatness and his goodness. And it's true regardless of our circumstances. So don't get discouraged when life gets difficult. God has called out a people for his name. If you're born again, you are one of those people that he has called out for his name. And he's working through the difficulties in our lives as hard as they can be sometimes. He's working to purify us, to grow us, to make a name for himself. That we would come to the end of ourselves. Even in our Christian lives, sometimes we try to hold on. We try to do our own thing. But when we come to the end of ourselves... And it becomes all about him and his grace and mercy. And our heart's desire becomes that he might make a name for himself. He's worthy. You see, he's faithful through these difficulties. He said in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
You see, it's the same God that watched over Israel, that watches over you and I, or you and me. As we continue through Israel's history in verse 9, we see God at work bringing plagues on the Egyptians as we touched on a couple weeks ago. And it says, you heard their cry. Even though God may leave us in our misery for a period of time, God hears us. He's not a God that's far off. He's not some deistic God, as many have proclaimed him. He is here. He is present. He cares. The word of God says, casting your cares upon him, for he cares for you. In verse 10, it says, you showed signs and wonders against the Egyptians. And it says, you knew the Egyptians acted proudly against Israel. God brought the plagues against Israel to make a name for himself. His name is above every name. Never forget it. God's name is above every name. Psalm 8, 1. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have, or excuse me, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. His name is above every name. And as we mentioned before, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now we come to where we left off two weeks ago for a very short message. But I just felt like we had to do that review. Verse 11, you divided the sea before them. So they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. Can you imagine the scene this morning? Moses raising his rod, God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. And when they get to the other side, just as they make it, the Egyptians following soon behind, right on their heels, and God closes up the water and drowns the enemies of God. They weren't just enemies of Israel. They were enemies of God. They were fighting against God's people. They actually set up a memorial, placed a bunch of stones in a large pile so that, you know, when we walk by this way and our children ask us, what do these stones mean? We can tell them what God did here. That's the scene. Just as Peter alludes to the eight souls being delivered through Noah's floodwaters as a picture of baptism, many see the crossing of the Red Sea as a picture of the same. And to a degree, I think that's correct. Just as the children of Israel were delivered out of Egyptian bondage, we have been delivered out of the bondage of sin. What a picture. Paul refers at least to the concept in Romans chapter 6. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You see, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're no longer under the bondage of sin. It's not that it, the, the nature is not there anymore but we're no longer in bondage to it. It's different. 
once we're born again. We become slaves of righteousness. Nehemiah 9, 12, he continues, or they, the Levites, continue. And with a pillar of cloud, you led them by day. And with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. God came to dwell in the midst of the children of Israel in the tabernacle. That's where the presence of God dwelt among the people. But he led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. There was no mistaking when God wanted them to move locations. There was no mistaking the direction that God wanted them to go because he led them. They knew exactly when and they knew exactly where. The same is true for believers today who are walking in the light. We do not walk in the path of the wicked. We walk in the path of the righteous. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. John eleven ten. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Walking in the light is analogous to walking in purity or holiness. But it's also analogous to walking in spiritual awareness, not being deceived, not walking in darkness, walking in the spirit, not stumbling in darkness. If we walk in the spirit following the Lord, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we will have direction through the obstacles and pitfalls in life. We are called to walk in the light. And when we follow Christ and we're led by the spirit of God that indwells every believer, we are walking in the light. It's a moment by moment endeavor to submit to the spirit of God. To submit to him for God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Nehemiah 9, 13 and 14. Then you came down on Mount Sinai, and you spoke with them from heaven, and you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and laws through your servant Moses. It's talking about God speaking from heaven on Mount Sinai with blazing fire and darkness and gloom and storm, causing both Moses and the Israelites to tremble with fear. You see, if they failed to keep God's law, God promised judgment. And God always keeps his word. But if you notice in verse 14, those two verses, the Levites mention only one specific commandment, the Holy Sabbath. Now, this was significant for the children of Judah because 
in their history for 490 years, they had avoided or ignored the yearly Sabbath. They were to work for six years and then let the land rest for a year. So when God took them, the first deportation out of the land of Judah and took them to Babylon in 606 BC, that began 70 years in which God gave that rest back to the land. See, God was very serious about the weekly Sabbath and the seven-year Sabbath. Why? Why is this the only commandment that's mentioned, even though it's talking about the commandments God gave at Mount Sinai? Why is this particular law so important here? Could it be because it pictured one significant principle that pointed ahead to a time to come? It pictures biblical saving faith in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews made that perfectly clear. You want to fulfill the Sabbath today? It's not resting on Saturday. It's resting in Christ. Jesus is my Sabbath. He's the one that I rest in because I know in and of myself who I am. I know my sins just like you do. And he's the only place that there's rest for my soul. Listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter the rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Folks, our rest is in Christ. That Sabbath rest that God made so important to the nation of Israel pictured the real rest that would one day come. It's not a day. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. It's in him that we have rest. You see, it's so easy to profess Christ and walk around with a heavy load of sins on our back. Living with guilt from the past. It's laborious. It's tiring. It's guilt-bearing. It's too much. Or asking questions. Do I really believe? Do I really have enough faith? Did I say the prayer correctly? That's what I grew up doing. Did I really mean it? Walking around with a weight that I could not bear. It's when we come to the end of ourselves and the end of our questions and we fall before the Lord Jesus Christ as our rest. That's where rest comes. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest 
for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, there's rest in Christ. If you're struggling, if you're living in guilt, his yoke is easy and his burden is so light. Verse 15 of Nehemiah 9. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. During the 40 years, the children of Israel were in the wilderness. The Lord provided manna from heaven. He provided rock from a water from a rock, excuse me. This was the supernatural provision from the God of heaven, from Yahweh. He also offered them the promised land, but they did not enter in faith. All this pictures the provisions we have in Christ. Praise God for complete revelation. After Jesus fed the 5,000 in John 6, the next day his disciples came across the Lake Galilee looking for him. When they found him, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. They had the wrong motive here for seeking the Lord. Sounds almost like health and wealth theology, doesn't it? You see, we don't just need God to provide for us. There's a provision that God provides that's so much greater than bread. Jesus said to these disciples with the wrong motive, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give you. For on him, the Father, God has set his seal. Later in the conversation, the disciples said, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven. Notice what Jesus said to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, John chapter 6, verse 32, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He's the bread of life and the water of life. He's the one that satisfies. You see how all this history of the nation of Israel relates to you and I? It's not just for the nation of Israel, the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's for God's elect. It's for all those who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because to us, he is the bread of life. He's the one that nourishes, that really satisfies. Nothing else satisfies in this world. People seek after all kinds of things for satisfaction and never find it. 
down deep this morning, you know what satisfies. Only Christ. He's the bread of life. He's the water of life. He quenches that thirst that's within all of us. Remember, Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. And he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink. And you would have asked and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with at the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than your father, Jacob, who gave us this well and drank of it himself, his sons and his cattle? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again over and over and over. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never, never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Folks, Jesus is the water of life. Jesus is the bread of life. He's real manna that satisfies. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. You want Sabbath rest? Look to Christ. That Sabbath rest. Jesus is the light of the world. He's actually Yahweh. Do you realize that John the Baptist refers to Jesus as Yahweh in Matthew chapter 3? In Matthew 3, John the Baptist quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I love this. He quotes that verse from Isaiah 40 verse, which includes prepared. He's showing that he would be the one. John the Baptist would be the one that would prepare the way for the Lord. And the Lord in the Hebrew that he quotes is Yahweh, the eternal self-existing God that needs no other, that's independent, that's eternal. That's who Jesus was. He is Yahweh. Are we trusting him with all of our hearts? I don't know about you, but I need Jesus. There is no other. There's no one greater. There's no one that can truly satisfy and give you rest. Let's pray.